name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, Shocktober! <laughs> Oh, you scared me! A heart attack! You it's got, alive! You got me Diabolique style! Now you get all my wealth. The Bride of Frankenstein. And today, we're talking about the man who played a hundred monsters, Mr. Paul Nashi. The king of Spanish horror. Get a load of this guy's resume. He's best known for playing the Spanish wolfman, El Hombre Lobo, in 12 movies, 11 of which still exist. But he didn't stop there. He also played Dracula, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Mummy, Jack the Ripper, Fu Manchu, Mr. Hyde, although apparently not Dr. Jekyll, and briefly, in a dream sequence once, Frankenstein's monster. I should clarify that uh, that Mr. Hyde is because in that movie, the werewolf versus Mr. Hyde, the werewolf is cured, but then turned into Mr. Hyde. Oh. <laughs> so it's actually the same character. And that kind of insanity actually leads to... You know, what really attracts people about Paul Nashie's career? This is a guy that obviously loved universal monsters, and he wanted to bring it to the screen in his country, Spain, that didn't really have a history of this. He was a small boy, you know, when the Spanish Civil War was happening. He grew up in Franco, Spain, mm -hmm. and apparently a life-changing moment for him was as a boy going to see Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, the universal horror movie, and he was like, I want to I wanna make... I'm sure it wasn't quite this kind of epiphany when it actually <laughs> happened, but this is how they tell the story. Yeah. I want to make movies like this. I mean, when Paul Nashie talks about his life, and he wrote, like, a biography, there's a bunch of documentaries about him, he's one of those guys that, because of the career he's had, he has a lot of, like, tall tales. Yeah. Where he's like, ah, me and Peter Cushing, we almost worked together. Or the story that he was on the TV show I Spy on an episode with Boris Karloff. And at one point, Boris Karloff started to cry because something was going wrong. And he's like, I saw Frankenstein's monster cry. Oh, that's powerful. Now, it's been a while since we've done a topic that I've felt less confident about than this one. Oh, me neither. This I, guy has I, had I, over 100 movies mm -hmm. and he's played all these monsters. And I've seen, you know, I watched four movies this week and I still don't quite get him as a screen presence, but I am intrigued. So, like, Paul Nashi, from the get-go, it's pretty evident why people like him. His films are filled with monsters, they're filled with blood, and they're filled with nudity. Mm -hmm. And him as a presence, I have the same feeling you do, which is I don't have like a lifelong affinity for him. I've always known of him, mm -hmm. but I've never really dived into his movies until this uh, podcast. And He's not the most charismatic of people. You said, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head, he looks like the third Belushi brother. <laughs> he does. <laughs> I think he also looks a bit like if Marlon Brando and John Saxon had a child. So, Paul Nashi is a short man, but he was actually a bodybuilder before he became, like, an actor and screenwriter and director. He looks chunky, but it's because it's all muscle and because he's short. He, there's gotta be some fat on there, though. Like, he's a he's got a weird body. Uh, did you see him in House of Psychotic Women when he takes his shirt off and starts, like, cutting up those? <laughs> it, it's just a, a weird body, and he's got... This kind of big face with a mm -hmm. strong jaw and sharp features, and his hairline is weird. And his, well, because he's going bald, so he yeah. always has a comb over or a wig. And his uh, he's a very deadpan presence, mm -hmm. at least in the movies that I saw. And I guess it's supposed to be kind of a smoldering presence. Well, I think that he's deadpan when he's playing human characters, mm -hmm. because when he gets in a monster costume, especially when he plays his werewolf, man, he's like slobbering all over the place and jumping and ripping into people. And I think that that's where his heart lies. Like Paul Nashie himself said that, 
he never wanted to be an actor. What he wanted to do was uh, be a director and a writer. And pretty much from the start of his career, which was 1968's uh, Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, a.k.a. Hell's Creatures, a.k.a. Mark of the Werewolf, like, he wrote all the scripts that he acted in. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe, like, an ego developed from that point forward when you start to become kind of like a star Mm -hmm. that you do want to appear in pictures. But he's always maintained that, like, screenwriting and creating these things and telling stories interested him. Acting, not so much. Before this week, my only experience with Paul Nashi had been as a kid or as a teenager, I had seen on a really bad public domain DVD from Madison. <laughs> ah, Madison. The only brand you can trust. A cut version of one of his most popular movies, The Wolfman versus the Vampire Woman. Mm-hmm. And I was very bored by it. And I, you know, looking into it, I saw that there was this whole. Uh, El Hombre Nero uh, series and that he had all this stuff and I was almost like resentful of it I was like it was like God, there, there's there's more of this? There's this whole mythos? Ugh, I don't even want to know about it. <laughs> now, I'm not sure about the version that you saw, but something kind of fascinating about the films that Paul Nashi made, because he was making them in very uh, conservative, um, mm. Franco-controlled Spain, they would actually shoot two versions of every scene that had gore nudity in. One where there wasn't that much gore, one where there was not that much nudity, and then they would shoot versions that have tons of gore, throats are slashed out, and then they would have full frontal nudity. And probably the version that you saw was a one that was packaged for television, I believe which would was. have had like all the clothes stuff and none of the violence. Well, as I revisited Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman this week, there was a scene I remembered of, uh, this is just a, a little a little reverie, folks. <laughs> yeah. It was a scene I remember of Paul Nashi in bed with his lady love, and on the version that I saw as a teenager, he's about to pull down the blanket to reveal her breasts and it cuts. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a teenager, you're like, I remember as a teenager thinking, fuck this. <laughs> Folks, I watched the uncut version this week. Wow, so much nudity. He you pulled, saw that breast. He, he pulled it all the way down. <laughs> Whoa! And it, you know, it just felt like I, I, I lived out, you know. <laughs> you like lived I, to I become finally, a man. I finally got closure on this issue. <laughs> I mean, Werewolf versus the Vampire Women, which was directed by Leon Klimovsky, which Paul Nashi would make like 10-ish films with, is the one that kind of cemented the popularity of his werewolf character. Uh, that film came out in 1971. The actual first werewolf film that he made was in 1968, and it was called Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, or Mark of the Werewolf. Or Dracula and the Werewolf, or La Marca del Hombre Lobo. You know, it yeah. had 20 titles. So from the get-go, we should say that Frankenstein's Bloody Terror while an amazing title has nothing to do with this movie. The rumor goes that Sam Sherman, uh, the man behind all of the best Hal Adamson pictures, um, had to contractually deliver a Frankenstein picture, which is ridiculous. How does a contract like that get signed? Yeah. So he got the rights to Mark of the Werewolf, and he's like, uh... The family in the movies called uh, the Frankensteins, and they changed their name to the Wolfensteins. And it explains this in this animated intro. <laughs> yes. It says, now we present to you the most horrifying Frankenstein story of all time. The Frankenstein story is hit with the curse of the Wolfman. So they're the <laughs> Wolfstein family. So ridiculous. And so, and I Frankenstein's was, never come I up again. I was watching the whole movie waiting. <laughs> really? I'm not the first person to make. Every single person to see this movie would be like, like, what? What's going on? And what's crazy about this film is that there's fucking Draculas in it. So it's like they could have called it. You got Wolfmans, you got Draculas, you got a lot of them. And there, there's no shortage of exploitable elements in this film. <laughs> but like Sam Sherman had to deliver a Frankenstein picture. So that's why he retitled it The Story Goes. So Frankenstein's Bloody Terror or The Mark of the Wolfman. This was 
the movie that was the first of the El Hombre Lobo series. Mm. Paul Nashi uh, actually got involved with director Enrique Lopez Aguilas. And Nashi himself wrote it under mm-hmm. his real name, which is Jacinto Molina Alvarez. <laughs> I like the laxing thing you put on Christina your name. Vicky Barcelona. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and now she also stars as the man cursed to turn into a werewolf. Now, what's interesting about this picture is that because it was one of Spain's first, like, straight-up genre films, they threw out all the stops. It was shot in 70 millimeter and in 3D. 70 millimeter chillerama. <laughs> Ooh. And you can tell what, you know, when I found out it was shot in 3D originally, it totally made sense. Yeah, because objects at the end are being thrown at the camera. And, and just amazing compositions throughout the movie, like when they're in the forest and mm-hmm. there's just like trees at every plane. Yeah, and it's a shame that Sam Sherman actually never released it in 3D in America so it only stayed in 3D in Spain where I believe any 70mm copy is gone forever. Nashi stars as Valdemar Daninsky who owns a castle and he's got a crypt and everything and some gypsies uh, stay in his crypt and they uncover a a wolfman who's been buried in the crypt and the wolfman's got a big silver thing in his heart and they're like hey wouldn't it be funny if we pulled this silver thing out of his this heart this happens at the beginning of all of Paul Nashi's werewolf films they find usually Paul Nashi and pull the silver bullet from and they're his like heart. watch this nothing will happen if we pull the silver bullet out <laughs> oh, of this oh no wolfman. we turned into a werewolf and of course it's always a full moon but anyway <laughs> there's like a full moon every second night in these movies Paul Nashi kills this wolfman or puts silver in it but not before the wolfman bites him mm-hmm. and so now Valdemar Daninsky Who's a Pole, not a Spaniard, and this is the classic, like, China censorship uh, reasons. All of these films, they never take place in Spain, and they usually don't involve Spaniards, because nothing bad happens in Franco-controlled Spain, so we couldn't have those stories take place there. Yeah, Valdemar Daniski has to have a Polish name, and most most of Nashi's movies take place in France. Yes. And shot it, shot in Spain. Yeah, looking nothing like <laughs> yeah. France. And so this movie, um, I mean, it's definitely like a first attempt at this werewolf stuff. It's kind of plotting. You can understand that Sam Sherman cut 15 minutes from the beginning of the film mm. in his Frankenstein's Bloody Terror version. Well, and, I really liked this movie, mm-hmm. and I didn't know anything about it going in, and I was delighted to find out halfway through that it was also a Dracula movie. <laughs> yeah, suddenly these characters show up in the Dracula. I mean, the, good, the best part about this film is that it's already embracing these colored gels and these giant crypts and, and spider webs smoke mm-hmm. and and yeah yeah uh ghouly creatures it feels very much like a movie made by people who grew up on universal horror movies but were also influenced by the mario bava stuff that was happening at the same time like paul nashi throughout his career was doing stuff that people like steven spielberg and quentin tarantino will be lauded for which is taking the stuff that they loved as kids and putting their own spin on it mm-hmm. and like that's why paul nashi like played so many monsters he wasn't like a contract player that was forced to do it like lon cheney jr where it's like well this is what you do right lon like you're gonna play all these these characters mm-hmm. he was a guy that just loved to do it when given the option to write stuff he would write like monster mashes and try to do everything he's like oh this movie's gonna have the golem in it or it's gonna have this so frankenstein's body terror like it is plotting it is mm-hmm. slow but uh, it was plotting to me in kind of a pleasant way mm-hmm. like you know watching it on an october night in the dark just wallowing in this uh you know horror atmosphere yes. Again, like that's what you want when you're like if it was like midnight and you're going through the channel and then like yeah. this movie comes on you're it, like ooh, it felt like being in a bath of horror. <laughs> 
And I mean, like Frankenstein's bloody terror. I, I still do think that like, it is like the stepping stone. And as Will said, we didn't have time to watch all 12 movies <laughs> that uh, Paul Nashy played the werewolf in. So like when he got together with Leon uh, Klimovsky in uh, the werewolf versus the vampire woman, 1971, like this was the one that was the mega hit. This is the one that like made Paul Nashy like a household name. And I revisited it for this podcast for the first time in, you know, 15 years or mm-hmm. however long. An interesting thing about the uh, Valdemar Doninsky mm-hmm. series is that in each movie, though he's the same character, he has a different origin story. Mm-hmm. And he usually dies at the end of the movie. Yeah, and there's no continuity between them. So in this one, of course, it opens with some some doctors uncover his body and like, hey, let's pull <laughs> out the, the silver, silver bullet. bullet. Nothing wrong could happen. And then, boom, he turns to a werewolf. Instantly. He murders both doctors. And then you get like the Euro sleaze like werewolf movie per excellence where he runs into the forest rips a woman's top off bites into her neck and as the credits play you see like droplets of blood run down her naked breast yes it's like a weird mixture of like Paul Nash is obviously like very innocent in the way that he loves these monsters Mm -hmm. but then at the same time it's filled with nudity and super gross gore the movie goes on to its, you know, real plot, which is that Nashi is living in this castle again in France, and two young women are, are out in the forest looking for uh, the curse of the vampire woman. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to find the crypt where she's buried. Like, hey, can we stay at your house, Paul Nashi? He's like, oh yeah, there's nothing to worry about except for my crazy sister who's gonna attack you at every chance. Also, I'm a werewolf. <laughs> yeah, but he falls in love with one of the women, and the only way that Paul Nashi in this movie can die is if the woman that he loves the most puts silver into his heart. Now, this is a running theme through all of the films that Paul Nashi wrote, which is almost all the ones that he started, is that Paul Nashi is like a sex magnet. Like, women cannot help themselves. Instantly, when they lay eyes on him, they will fall in love. I must say, the love story in The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman, I was not unmoved by it. Hmm. I I found it quite sweet and, and sad. Yeah. I mean, like, the one that kind of resonates the most with me is Dracula's great love because that's what the whole movie is about at the mm. end and like Paul Nashy could pull this stuff off but there is still that like egoistical kind of like oh look I'm such a he-man women can't help but Any fall of those in love with me scenes where he's like in bed in his big barrel chest <laughs> yeah. he always looks like he's like sucking in his gut <laughs> He's got that little muscle fat guy thing going. Yeah, yeah. He looks like Super Mario or something. (laughs) (laughs) But like um, Klimovsky, what he brings to the movie and like Paul Nashi was a little bit dismissive of this director that he worked over and over again with, which is like Bava, is that like talking scenes, you know, just shoot him, get out. But when there's gore and there's set beats, Mm -hmm. that's when he like comes alive and he kind of like gives it his all. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you approach it knowing that, then you'll enjoy it that much more. The talking scenes in Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But when you get the stuff like the woman ghost-like appearing into the room or like the werewolf man just ripping somebody's throat out, you're like, ah, yeah, that's the good stuff. And, you know, I am interested to explore Nashi a little more because... I find with a lot of, you know, Euro horror movies of this period, they get better for me the longer they have to sort of marinate in my memory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because when you're going in and you do want that instant gratification, sometimes those Euro sleaze movies, you know, they don't always deliver. But then when you think about them and you revisit them, you're like, oh, yeah, this part. Well, like, yeah, and the images can be very striking and Mm -hmm. strong and weird. And, you know, once, once you 
uh, put aside your your preconceived notions of what a well-made movie is. <laughs> Narrative coherence, yeah. like likable characters. And you embrace the, you know, and you remember it the way you remember a dream. Mm-hmm. Just very striking moments and not quite sure how they fit together. What's interesting about Nashi is that, unlike Jess Franco, who Nashi is very dismissive of, mm. Nashi actually stayed in Spain under Franco's kind of reign and continued to make the movies that he made. And he somehow was able to pull it off where, like I said, there'd be the safe Spanish version and the super violent export version. So he's a filmmaker uh, who got to do both things, which is like his films still hold up and don't feel tame because he did shoot that violence, mm-hmm. but he was still able to make money and continue making movies and be popular by releasing these censored versions. And it's interesting watching how he made his movies in Franco Spain, like the the sort of lengths he would go to mm-hmm. or, or the workarounds that he did. So a movie that we both watched this week, Inquisition, his 1978 directorial debut is about the Inquisition, not the Spanish Inquisition, but the French, French Inquisition. Inquisition. Supposedly he did want to do it about the Spanish Inquisition. And I mean, by 1980, Franco was out of it, but like people convinced him, ah, don't do something about Spain, do France instead. But it is so clearly the Spanish Inquisition. A hundred percent. And this is another movie drawing from inspirations at the time where like Inquisition is that weird subgenre that was burst from Michael Reeves' Witchfinder General mm-hmm. and the Devils and Mark of the Devil, which is these witchfinders going around torturing innocent women. This was a whole like boom at yeah. the time. I don't get it. Uh, oh, I get it. It's, I mean, I get it. It's, it's, it's not for it's me. It's torture devices, which yes. are, are cool. And it's naked women. And it's stuff that you've never seen before. Like in Inquisition, a woman gets her nipple cut off on screen yeah. in gruesome detail. That's pretty gross. The, yeah. the torture scenes in this movie do pack a punch. But what Inquisition is, is a weird story where it's essentially the witch, where these witch finders... Um, they accuse a woman of witchcraft and because of the abuse and her life being destroyed she actually does go to witchcraft Mm -hmm. because they kind of force her into that position and she uses the witchcraft to kind of like have revenge yeah but does she win nope it ends super cynically where essentially everybody dies this movie has some good scenes i mean in in addition to the torture scenes which you know uh your mileage may vary on them i mean they're as brutal as you can get for this kind of stuff but it has some amazing black mass scenes yes it does. They're kind of weird and dreamy. I love the like. Uh, she, uh, the woman actually um, goes to meet Satan. I assume probably played by Paul Nashi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, believe. it is played by Paul Nashi. He plays <laughs> in I think, a goat-headed uh, yeah. mask. He plays, I think, for three parts in this movie, including the Grim Reaper. <laughs> And he plays one of the Inquisitors. Uh, I, I wish Inquisition were a little bit better. Yeah, me too. It's watchable. It's okay. It's not the one that I would recommend to uh, people to go watch right away if they want to get into Paul Nashi. I feel like we're a little bit of a disadvantage because when I was picking the movies for this, I went off Letterboxd and like what the most popular ones were. And they're not necessarily the ones that are the most interesting or the most out there. They're the ones that are the most available. Mm-hmm. And thanks to companies like Mondo Macabro, essentially all the great Paul Nashi films are available. But I, it wasn't like a canonization of like, oh, you should see this one or that one. Because like, I would have recommended Horror Rises from the Tomb, which I got a chance to watch, which is a film that came out in 1973. And that one is everything you'd want from Eurosley's film. Paul Nashi plays an evil man who in the opening scene gets his head cut off in giant wide. You see it fly off in slow motion. And then it cuts to him again, playing another character with a bunch of people that go to a cabin and whoa, that decapitated head of Paul Nashi is buried in the ground and giving evil orders to everybody in the cabin to kill each other and then you get zombies you get the evil head comes back up you get so much colored lighting and LSD trip out sequence you get mob justice
this a huge theme. The story goes that horror rises from the tomb. Paul Nashi was forced to write it in a day and a half, and it has that kind of like fueled by amphetamines feel to it. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, I'll check it out. I know. It wasn't one that had monsters yeah. in it, so it's not the one that I went to automatically. One that we both watched was House of Psychotic Women. AKA Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. And, you know, I like the title House of Psychotic Women <laughs> yeah. a little bit better. This is Paul Nashi's The Beguiled. <laughs> it is. He, he plays a ex-convict who is looking for work in the uh, French countryside. Probably. Yeah, it's always know. France. <laughs> I don't know. And he gets picked up by... Or London. It's one or the other. <laughs> he gets picked up by a woman, a beautiful woman who has a horribly mutilated hand who says, you can come work at my castle. Oh, but be wary. I do have a nymphomaniac sister. I hope mm. she won't seduce you. Mm. And there... Spoiler alert. She does. And there's another sister who's uh, paraplegic. Mm-hmm. And there's also a giallo killer going around, murdering people as he hums Farishok. So I like this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has most of what you would want from a giallo movie, including good music and, uh, you know, uh, bloody bloody killings. And yeah, it's it's filmed with a lot of skill. Um, You know, I liked it moderately. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Like, it's not you when you see these kind of Eurosleeves movies, you want them to push it to a level where you're like, whoa, like, it's so crazy. And I feel like something like Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll is there. Like, you're not going to be disappointed by it. Mm -hmm. As, As I said before, you do get to see Paul Nashy in all his hairy chested glory chop up a bunch of wood making the women around him swoon it does have a mystery that it ends and you're like wait what that's who the killer was yeah (laughs) which is kind of awesome but like I like Nashy when he's doing crazier stuff like Dracula's Great Love which is more fantastical or something like um, he made a mummy movie as well where the mummy's main move is crushing people's faces with his fist <laughs> and like that kind of stuff is really fun um, like reading about Paul Nashy in the only English language book I believe about his work Human Beast the films of Paul Nashy by Troy Howarth he actually talks about how like later on in his career when Paul Nashy continued to work as a director he actually kind of evolved his style into non monster properties and really great movies including one called The Traveler that came out in 1980 I believe and that's supposedly his masterpiece it's all like noir lighting and it's a story about a guy going from like city to city and seeing all these horrible stuff and like that's one I wish I had watched but I'm like man he's not playing a werewolf in it or a vampire I want those ones because those seem like the funnest ones that you can watch the thing about Paul Nashi is that he kept chugging along for decades. He started in 1968, and he's continued to make movies well into the 90s. Yeah, and his career, of course, petered out, of as, course, as yeah. they often do. But, you know, he had a consistent fan following mm-hmm. for all that time. So uh, he-, he had outliners, like he got a three-movie deal with the Japanese, mm. and he made uh, a film called Human Beast, which is like a heist turns to cannibalism film. He made one where it was actually the werewolf in Japan, fighting Japanese style creatures Mm -hmm. he made one called uh, Kamikaze something which is just like a bloody action film in the 2000s of course he came back to his beloved El Hombre Nero character with a filmmaker we both love right uh, yes, friend of the podcast, Fred Olin Ray. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. And supposedly it's a real, like, um, kind of uh, soft core fest, like lots of bared breasts, in a way that I guess is, you know, it's weird to say it's a lot of bared breasts. It's in the yeah. spirit, but it has that, like, 2000s feel of, like, soft lighting, and Paul Nashi is, he's a very old man, uh, in the making of feature at a Fred Olin Ray's, like, a little bit incensed that Nashi would complain about like the the makeup itching and stuff like that because he's huh. like what he, you've done this like uh, 20 times by now yeah. and i'm like he's so old doesn't though. get any easier no 
Paul Nashi is one of those rare horror figures that did get to live to see his popularity kind of like develop, I would say, like beyond when the movies came out, like up to the last years of his life. He wrote his own autobiography. He went to fan conventions like he knew he was loved and, until the day that he finally passed away. And he does have such a filmography. There's so much stuff you can explore. Uh, Hunchback of the Room Org. Um, like I said, the werewolf versus the Yeti. Uh, going to that one, not expecting much Yeti action. More like three minutes of okay. Yeti. Only at the beginning and the end. That sounds right. Yeah. And he even uh, was able to pull off a cat in the brain style film about like a washed up horror actor called Howl of the Devil. And that's the one where he got to play the Wolfman again. He got to play the Frankenstein monster. He got to play another hunchback. He got to do it all. Supposedly the film is very cynical. I haven't even uh, gotten a chance to see it. I mean, Paul Nashi, like, he seemed to want to take any offer that he could get. He even played the Wolfman in like a kid's comedy where they meet the monsters. And he even made movies like in the near the end of the 70s, he made a film called The Transsexual that he wrote and starred in, which was about like someone getting a sex change operation. And I haven't seen the film, but from everything I could read about it, it was very kind of uh, sober. It wasn't exploitative. It was about how kind of society shits on these people mm. and that like the person died from getting a sex, a botched sex change operation. But at the end of the day, it's an actual sympathetic portrait of this person. He even made like an anti-Franco movie. He made two wow. that kind of blacklisted the him, even though it was after Franco died, but because the people that were in power were still in power, they did not like him doing these kind of films. I also know that towards the end of his life, he got whatever the Spanish equivalent of the Lifetime Achievement Oscar He did, is. yes. Yeah. And I mean, like, that's amazing, because can yeah. you imagine Lon Jaty Jr. getting a Lifetime Achievement Oscar? Yeah. That would never happen. Jess Franco also got one. <laughs> Good for him. Hopefully on the same day, and they were yeah. both on the stage together. So, I mean... Much to explore. Yeah, if you don't know who Paul Nashie is, I would definitely go, uh, recommend Horror Rises from the Tomb, and I would also recommend Werewolf versus the Vampire Women, which, while not the first werewolf film, is considered, like, the first great one. Mm-hmm. So to check that one out. And then, again, pick up the book by Tor Howers. He actually gives a really good, like... Uh, overview of his history, keeping it personal and being critical of which films are good and which ones are bad. Um, so hopefully you can check that out. It, it's two box sets that just came out from Scream Factory as well. Paul Nashi Volume 1 and Paul Nashi Volume 2. Man, none of these people are paying us for all these plugs I'm giving them. Yeah, we should get free stuff. <laughs> yeah, we should get... Put us on one of those mailing lists. Scream Factory, send a free stuff. Troy Howard, I will read every book that you write, so just send it my way. Yeah. Okay, so as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com The first letter is from loyal listener Sean Glynis, and he goes, Hey guys, first thing, I was struck this week when I turned on the Terrence Davies' The Long Day Closes, only to be greeted in its opening credits by the important cinema club music. Oh yeah, I wrote (laughs) that song. (laughs) For anybody who wants to know where we got our music, I don't know if I said this before, but I just searched, I know that song, that and I just associate it with like pompousness and rich people, and I search rich people music in YouTube, popped up right away so that's how i got that music anyway i was wondering if you two could talk about what you gravitate to most in film criticism as readers are you looking to see if the writer liked the film or not or is that secondary do you like when a writer engages with the film's known production or is that too extra textual do you want a writer's personal forward approach or an interpretation of the royal viewer etc while i'm here gotta sneak in a future topic suggestion pierre était thanks sean uh, I don't know who Pierrette is. He's a French comedian. Ah, there you go. Criterion put out a box set, and I believe... <gasps> a uh, Jerry Lewis-like comedian? Uh, I was about to say that Jerry Lewis is a fan. Oh, okay. So. Hmm, that would be a very good subject to talk yeah. about. Now, as, as far as film criticism that you read, Will, you just like people you disagree with, right? 
I like, those right wingers. That... I like people who can uh, make my pulse rise and make me sweat and, <laughs> and, and, and make me feel something. So, you know, Sally Jane Black on Letterboxd, <laughs> Wet Movie One on YouTube, um, um, Jeff Wells, <laughs> Jeff Fiora Wells. Mastracci. These are the guys who, who yeah, get me to feel something. <laughs> and as far as me, I mean, I've talked about it a lot. Like, I will read criticism from people that I like a lot. Uh, just because we share the same taste. And again, it's like letterbox stuff, right? So uh-huh. it's like, um, I know that like Jacob Knight, Matt Lynch, they're the ones that always pop up at the top of my letterbox because it's the the um, algorithm's probably like, you know these people and they usually like what you like. So here are their thoughts on it. And as far as extra textual information, love that shit. I love it if there's like production history behind it and stuff like that of how the movie came to be. Yeah, I don't think there's... Uh, a single like one size fits all thing that I'm looking for in film criticism. Except unless it's, uh, I'm speaking of like older movies, like new movies. If they're like, this movie costs a hundred million dollars. How dare they? That doesn't interest me very much at all. I like, I like good writing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, (laughs) I'm glad that you could state that on this podcast. Well, you know, a lot of film criticism isn't good writing. You know, I like, uh, an interesting, I'm entirely drawn by the critic and I don't, I don't particularly care you know, the, like the thing is, I'm not really looking out for movie recommendations often when I'm reading film criticism. Mm-hmm. Like guys like us, cosmic brain geniuses <laughs> with film guys who guys who I'm, know everything I, about film. Well, I'm always looking for film um, recommendations because if I haven't heard of it, I'm like, Ooh, hey, whoa, what is this? Well, okay, I guess I have to qualify that the book that you talked about on last week's podcast, the uh, analog, analog nightmares. nightmares. Oh, I just got it this week. Did you flip through it? And oh, you're like, course, oh my god, of course. And there's lots of stuff in there. So I guess sometimes I am looking for mm-hmm. recommendations, but you know. Um, Most of the time I'm not like I think I said this before is that like when I get a book of film criticism I'm usually interested if it's one individual voice as opposed to like an anthology because in that way I can see like many different aspects of the way this single person approaches film and at the same time I also flip through it and be like do I know any of these movies yes Ah, no no thank you put it back on the shelf okay I just had another thought Mm -hmm. Um, tell me if this makes sense I'm interested in writers who are good writers but who can also tell me about how the film works. Yes. So, and they, I, I would have to say, they also need, and this is not like straight jacketing them or anything, but like a cons- consistent kind of through line t- to their writing. Yeah, I, I want, yeah, I want some sense of their personality. So, c- take Pauline Kale for instance. Yes. Who we did an episode early on. Um, I'm not a huge lover of Pauline Kale, mm-hmm. although she is obviously a great writer. Oftentimes in Pauline Kale's reviews, it seems like the movie is merely a jumping off point for her prose. Yes. Um, and you'll read her prose and it's very dynamic and it's, and, but, but it doesn't really illuminate the movie to me. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody like Dave Kerr, uh, he, the great critic, he takes a movie and he like opens the trunk and he shows you how like this thing fits into that thing and the way it really works. Mm-hmm. So I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes complete yeah, sense. Yeah. And unfortunately I don't think I have any like new great critic that I could recommend that i'm reading these days and i just gotta go look at the shelf oh no just jonathan rosenbaum books on here yeah <laughs> that's all that i have in my bookshelf jonathan rosenbaum paul fornoff and uh Jean paul, paul fornoff <laughs> is in that list of uh, people who make my blood boil and my <laughs> pulse rise uh well thank you very much for the letter our next letter is from michael hendra and the subject is the tattoo guy Hey, fellas. Oh, God, yeah. So can we just fill in? Uh, Last week, we talked about how somebody got our logo tattooed on them. Mm -hmm. So keep going. Hey, fellas, I just wanted to let you know that I much appreciate the show and that my tattoo is healing perfectly. (laughs) It's, It's sobering to think that our faces are on someone's knee and that, like, it's injured and must heal. 
Will it ever truly heal, though? I mean, <laughs> on, a, on a deeper spiritual level? <laughs> I know you guys mentioned that whomever gets your logo permanently marked on one skin, they could choose the subject of a future episode. I just recently started to think what I could possibly ask for. I honestly never thought that part through since I know <laughs> the claim was said in jest, and I just wanted to do it. As I told you on Twitter, I have the advantage of owning and operating my own tattoo shop. Do you think it would give a discount to people that want important cinema club tattoos? Yeah, folks, if anybody else wants an important cinema club tattoo, get in touch with with this fellow <laughs> don't do it please you know what's great about our logo because it's our hairlines yeah. and our glasses if you decide that you hate us yeah you can change it into something you can, else. yeah you can make us yeah <laughs> another person yeah it's like a winona to wino yeah <laughs> as i have the advantage of owning and operating my own tattoo shop it wasn't that difficult to get it. I asked one of our artists, and in about half an hour or so, it was done. I feel like I cheated in a way, even though it, the real not coming off with warm water deal. It's not cheating. You're Don't not cheating. Worry. You have a tattoo of our, of our logo on your body. Also, you guys have been on such a fantastic role lately that I don't want to mess with the vibe. I listened to the Charles Band episode twice. Thank you. And don't get me started on the difficulty of John Landis. You fellas rock. Oh, thank you. I'm also a proud Patreon subscriber. Thank you. Can you imagine he's like, I'm saving up money to subscribe to your Patreon. If he had a tattoo and he wasn't a Patreon <laughs> subscriber, that would be incredible. And there's just a mess of amazing subject matter on there as well. Uh, I love the casual and free spirit of these episodes. They contrast nicely to the more academic ones on the main podcast. Ah, finally, someone calls us academic. <laughs> so you recently had a Patreon episode where you listed your favorite movies from 1977. I'm a sucker for movie lists, and I believe uh, both of you are as well. Long story short, I'm about to start a movie club on the first of every month at my shop. And since it's my place, and I'll be the curator for the time being, I wonder if you could possibly list about five or ten underrated and obscure gems that I could possibly show. So what do you think? It's not original or groundbreaking in the movie podcasting world, but it would really help me out, and I think it would be fun Patreon episode. Regardless, thank you, Justin and Will, for entertaining and informing me for more than two years now. I am proud of my tattoo, and I honestly don't need anything in return. Your number one fan, Michael. Well, thank you very much, Michael. We'll actually save that. We'll come back later with recommendations for movies that we would do. Just because we're in Shocktober right now, we'll just save it for later on and be able to give it like our full attention okay all right so our next uh letter is from josh and it goes justin and the other guy you talked about hente he sounds like a michael and me listener hmm. <laughs> you talked about hente on a recent episode you got it all wrong hente isn't just tentacles uh they've got generic brand sex too which is all the other guys can handle missionary only josh last name should have been withheld harris do you know who that is Josh Harris? No, but, well, okay, I did... You did say Hente was tentacles, and while I was editing it, I was like, uh, Will's not right. Well, but... I don't know a lot about Hente. I, we talked about Hente, I think, on a recent Patreon episode yes, about we the did. guinea pig series. We didn't really talk about it, it no. just came out. And no, I... but we said we were saving it, a Legend of the yeah. Overfiend episode for in the future. And I was talking about how Hente is just very Baffling to upsetting you. to me, yeah. and I don't like the idea of it. And what I should have stopped to consider was that I don't want to kink shame. No, you don't. Anybody okay. who likes Hente... Yes. They're allowed to like it, and that's lovely. Now, how do you feel about the um, deep AI thing where you can put people's faces on other people's bodies, which I read an article that they've been doing that with famous people and pornography a lot. Boy, I wish I could do that with my wife. <laughs> oh. No, uh... <laughs> I how do I how do I feel about it? Um, I don't I don't feel about it. Okay. I have no opinion on yeah, it. Yeah, if you like, I mean, it, it's very immoral. You know, I just you know what I like. I like just missionary just old meat and potato sex. You know, <laughs> just straight up the old P and V move. Yeah, you, know? you just like to throw on deep throat the classics, uh, <laughs> the opening of Misty Beethoven. Man, it's been what? I don't think we've done a porn director since like Radley Metzger, have we? Let's do one soon. Yeah, I mean. 
Uh, I mean, a little uh, taste. Oh, we do have kind of one coming up. Yeah, soon. we do yeah. have one okay. coming up. And uh, we'll Let's... try to get you to guess who that is. Yeah. Uh, you will not guess. <laughs> it is not the director of Water Power. <laughs> I would love to do one on Sean Costello, though. Uh, it sounds like a Patreon one. Um, well, so, Josh, I hope that we clear that up. Thank you very much for your letter. Speaking of the Patreon, by the way, this week we looked back on the Scary Movie series. Not just the Scary Movie series. Specifically, we sat down and watched together Scary Movie 2. How did it hold up? You'll just have to find out. (laughs) How did it hold up? Uh, Yeah. I think we had a pretty illuminating discussion. Yeah, we did. Of this pre-9-11 relic. Yeah. Is it still funny? That's the real... Is it still funny? (laughs) five dollars a month you can become a patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash the important cinema club you get four episodes a month in our 83 episode back catalog now folks this just happens to be one of those months where october the days are distributed in such a way that we can do one more shocktober episode mm-hmm. and we are going to talk about the phenomenon of the scream queen mm-hmm. and unfortunately when you search scream queens now all that really comes up is a tv show that lasted two seasons but we're going to be talking about about actors that would star in slasher films like back in the day like Jamie Lee Curtis and also ones that would come like more in the 80s like Linnea Quigley. So we're talking about I guess for Jamie Lee Curtis let's talk about prom night. Yeah. For Linnea Quigley I don't know what we would talk about. Uh, I'm, there's a lot of different movies you could do. You could do like Night of the Demons. You could do even like Return of the Living Dead but she doesn't really have that kind of role in that one. I mean that's... What's, what's a Scream Queen movie that yeah. she's in? One that is like pure Linnea Quigley. <laughs> well definitely Linnea Quigley's horror workout but that's okay. not really a movie so we're not going to watch that. Well okay we can decide which Linnea Quigley joint mm-hmm. we'll watch later. Also, can I suggest... Yes. Camille Keaton. Camille Keaton. I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah. Never seen it. You've never seen I've it? I've never seen I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah. Let's so do let's it. do it. I was going to suggest uh, Barbara Steele as like an early Scream Queen yeah. that we could talk about. Okay, yeah. let's do her too. Yeah. So there's four movies there. We'll do one for each and yeah. we'll just talk about like what it means and what they bring to a movie. So mm. that's our topic next week. And until then, I'm Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. You made an amazing discovery today, Will. On IMDb, they have something like 150 old episodes of At the Movies with Siskel and Eva. Where are they? I went looking for it when you mentioned it, and I couldn't find like where they were linked. They're in, if you go on, somebody told me about this. If you go on Roger Ebert's yeah. IMDb page, mm-hmm. and then you go to videos, yeah. just click on videos, they're and all it goes there. to the whole thing. And they're not taped off TV. They're from the source. Wow. And so, of course, I was looking through them. Uh, going straight to what the dog of the week was. <laughs> These are episodes from 1980, 1981, 1982. Mm. Really early ones. And on those episodes, Siskel and Ebert would have a gimmick where they would have a dog who come into the balcony and they say, oh, it's Sparky the Wonder Dog here to say the dog of the week. Wow. And they would say... Would the dog go... Woo! And then let the title would appear? Basically. And they would say, so, you know, long before Video Hound, there was another canine <laughs> film critic. And, and his name was Roger Ebert, to the second. S- yeah, yeah. He was he was a bit of a poon hound, if you know what I mean. If, if, if legend is to be believed. <laughs> like father, like son. Oh, boy. So I was looking at these Dog of the Week segments, and f- to, to report them, Siskel and Ebert would just 
you know, spent Saturday afternoon, like, going to the grindhouses in Chicago. <laughs> uh, you know, rubbing shoulders with the common man. Yeah, and a lot of the choices are movies that are sort of, like, beloved <laughs> schlock movies now. Mm. You know, so there's one movie that was a kung fu movie that... Roger Ebert was reviewing very condescendingly, and it was under an alternate title. And I looked up what the movie was, and it was Executioners from Shaolin. Not even a schlock movie, like a classic directed by La Carlung. A wonderful Shaw Brothers yeah. kung fu movie, but of course... The he, lips don't even match the words! You know, he just treated it very condescendingly. And then there are a lot of other movies that I'm just surprised that Siskel and Ebert saw. Yes. It's like, I, I'm amazed that they, that yeah, they, they saw these images projected onto a screen, and it was them. And so... Uh, there was one segment where Siskel went to see the porn musical Blonde Ambition. <laughs> and he said... I mean, is it that surprising that uh, Siskel loves the the pornography musicals? He, he was also a poon hound himself, wasn't he? That's true. He used to hang out at the Playboy Mansion. Mm -hmm. Now... Uh, Blonde Ambition is a film I've seen, by the way. <laughs> okay. Do you own the Vinegar Syndrome? I don't know who released it, but... Uh, it's a Distribix joint. Oh, those are also very... Yeah. The Criterion of Pornography. Yeah. And uh, Blonde Ambition, you know, not bad as mm. far as those ones go. It was marketed under the tagline, uh, if you like singing in the rain and deep throat, you'll love Blonde Ambition. <laughs> and Siskel, Siskel, like, cites this very condescending, like, oh, this movie has the nerve to say, if you love singing in the rain and deep throat, you'll love... It that seems correct. Yeah, that, that, that's yeah. not an out there. Uh... I, I don't know. I think he was just very unfair to Blonde Ambition. You know, it's a, I think it was. <laughs> you're just... you're gonna defend. This is the hill you're gonna die on. I think on. Blonde Ambition was a very solid example of its genre. And not the, a dog of the week. In the same segment, the movie that Ebert saw was Joe D'Amato's Anthropologist. <laughs> uh, I would buy that as a dog of the week. Ebert has also seen Jerry Warren's Frankenstein Island. Mm. He has seen. Jess Franco's Jack the Ripper with Klaus Kinski. <laughs> These are all movies that Siskel and Ebert went to see. Hey, I saw Jack the Ripper in 35mm at a 24-hour film oh. marathon, and I fell asleep while watching it. It's really not that great. No, Maybe it, is it not. was a dog of the yeah, week, frankly. It was a dog of the week. But what you're more interested in is not just like them getting stuff wrong, it's the idea of them sitting there watching these movies. Well, also, like, nobody was reviewing these movies. Mm -hmm. It was them and Joe Bob Briggs and who the were reviewing dog. them. Yeah. <laughs> and they just went simply to to mo mock them. There's an episode where they review Swamp Thing and Ebert says, now, I cannot tell a lie. I went to Swamp Thing thinking it would be the dog of the week, <sighs> but I actually liked it. Terrible. He, Terrible, yeah, Ebert. Going yeah. to just like dislike yeah. a film. But he gave it thumbs up. Oh, good for Ebert yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, also after we finished watching Scary Movie 2 and we were all laughed out and we needed a break, <laughs> and by that I mean we were eating some food and wanted to put something on in the background, I did something I haven't done in years and I hit the button so my TV went to the digital satellite that we found in the garbage for free <laughs> and it put on Entertainment Tonight, which I haven't watched since. I lived at my mom's house, yeah, so high yeah, school high school was probably the last time I saw it. And it has not changed at all. It's got worse. And that's the scary part, is that watching Entertainment Tonight, it was literally the same stuff that was playing when I was in high school. And I can only imagine that it's because of the way that internet works. Entertainment Tonight is holding this, like, chokehold on the culture that existed before the popularization of, like, well, you can find whatever you want. Mm. So the people watching it, they want to hear about, what were the topics that we saw? Jersey Shore. Yeah, Jersey Shore. Uh, Britney Spears. The 20-year anniversary of Britney Spears singing... Uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time. Hit Me Baby One More Time. Yeah. It was just like, wow. John Stamos was on. John Stamos was on, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, 
good on them for like continuing to truck on, but it is for like one group of people, I feel, that kind of entertainment show. People trapped on the couch that can't turn it off. I was amazed by the Jersey Shore segment because <laughs> how are they still talking well, about Well they this? were filling us in on their they're just saying what was happening in like Snooky's life <laughs> as if we knew what was happening. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well of course you know her she married this person, but then blah 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 Wasn't Jersey Shore like fifteen years ago? Who's following the lives of all these people. By the way, Mike the Situation Sorrentino, <laughs> he is going to prison for tax evasion. Ah, well I'm glad that you were able to share that information with me. Mm-hmm. We will.